Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for what you've done for us. Thank you, Lord, that when we are bogged down in the mire, you can lift us up and set us free. And you desire to do so. You poured out your life for us through your son Jesus on the cross that we might have resurrection life. On the third day when he rose again from the dead, he was the first fruits. And we who have faith in him will follow. So set us free, Lord God, by your word today and by your Holy Spirit, we pray. It's in the precious name of your son Jesus, I ask it. Amen. Amen. Uh, Lee Atwater, the campaign manager for George Bush in the 1988 United States presidential campaign, was a great success by the standards of the world. Uh, But after he was diagnosed with cancer, brain cancer, he began to reflect upon his life. Trials will do that to you, won't they? He expressed those reflections in almost regretful terms, terms that spoke of his desire to have recognized earlier the folly of ordering his life by the wisdom of the world rather than the wisdom of God. According to Life magazine, Lee admitted these things. He said, quote, the 80s were about acquiring wealth, about power, about prestige. I know. I acquired more wealth, power, and prestige than most. But you can acquire all you want and still feel empty. What power wouldn't I trade for a little more time with my family? What price wouldn't I pay for an evening with my friends? It took a deadly illness to put me eye to eye with that truth, but it is a truth that the country caught up in its ruthless ambitions and moral decay can learn on my dime. I don't know who will lead us through the 90s, he said, but they must be made to speak to this spiritual vacuum at the heart of American society, this tumor of the soul, unquote. That's some phrase, isn't it? That last phrase, powerfully descriptive. In a way, Lee Atwater was echoing the heartbeat of James, the Lord's brother. What human beings desperately need is the wisdom of God. And without God and his wisdom, we're doomed to experience this tumor of the soul, as that water said. Probably one of the outstanding characteristics of this generation, I would say, is the absence of true wisdom. As Lee Atwater noted, this generation may indeed perish for lack of it. It seems unbelievable in a time when we are graduating more people from college than ever in the course of history that we could be suffering from a lack of wisdom. But that's just it. Knowledge is not the same thing as wisdom. Webster's Dictionary defines wisdom as both knowledge and good sense. But even by that worldly standard, it's more than just those two things isolated. They must work together. Knowledge used with good sense. Let me ask you a question. Do we as a society exhibit good sense in all of our knowledge? 
I mean, through increased knowledge, we have learned to travel at speeds previously unknown to man. But without good sense, we have simply traveled faster in the wrong direction. Through knowledge, we have accumulated unprecedented amounts of information about the world that we live in, available literally at our fingertips, right? But we show our lack of wisdom by the destructive ways we live in the world we supposedly know so much about. Knowledge becomes nothing but burdensome baggage when we lack the discernment to use it to attain honorable and righteous goals. No, wisdom must indeed be something more than that. Rather than being knowledge and good sense, I would offer a more biblical idea. It's knowledge applied with God's sense. In other words, wisdom does the right thing in the right way at the right time for the right purpose. Or as Alistair Begg recently put it, wisdom is knowing how to live God's way in God's world. Let me say that again because that's memorable. That's something that you should remember. Wisdom, according to the Bible, is knowing how to live God's way in God's world. Wisdom is clearly one of the greatest virtues in all of life yet one that is often least exhibited in our lives. We are a staggering people, drunk with knowledge and dry of wisdom. Judging from the moral state of our world, in the wake of our so-called superior intellect, we have virtually lost all sight of God. We do not acknowledge His way, nor do we acknowledge that it's His world. Yet the question remains, where can wisdom be found? That was Job's perplexing dilemma toward the end of his epic trial, remember? Turn in your Bibles to Job chapter 28 for a moment before we get into James. I'd like you to look at a few things here. Job 28 verse 12. Job 28, 12, but where can wisdom be found, he asks, and where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its value, nor is it found in the land of the living. Ah, it's otherworldly, it says here. The deep says it's not in me, and the sea says it's not with me. Pure gold cannot be given in exchange for it, nor can silver be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir. In precious onyx or sapphire, gold or glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for articles of fine gold. Coral and crystal are not to be mentioned, and the acquisition of wisdom is above that of pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. Where then does wisdom come from? And where is the place of understanding? Thus, it is hidden from the eyes of all living In other words, true wisdom is not of this world. You can't buy it. You can't trade anything for it. You can't uncover it in the depths of the sea. You can't put a price on it because it's beyond earthly value, more precious than silver or gold, the Scripture says. There is only one place that you can go to find it. 
Job 28 again, verse 23. God understands its ways. Underline that in your Bibles, highlight it. God understands its way and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he imparted weight to the wind and meted out the waters by measure, when he set a limit for the rain and a course for the thunderbolt, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and also searched it out. And to man he said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. You see, the book of Proverbs, which is literally a manual for the impartation of true wisdom, corroborates this. Listen to the words of one who had been gifted with more wisdom than any man on the face of the earth in Proverbs chapter 1. If you'd like to turn there, the first seven verses of Proverbs, it opens up this way, very clearly giving us instructions. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, to know what? Wisdom an instruction to discern the sayings of understanding, to receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the naive, to the youth, knowledge, and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel to understand a proverb and a figure, the words of the wise and their riddles. Here it is again. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 9.10 says it once again. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Getting the picture? Here's what the world says. The world says, get rich, get smart, get fit, get on with it. But the repeated counsel of the Bible is to get wisdom. Get wisdom. This should be the aim of my life and yours. In Proverbs chapter 4, verses 5 and verses 7, verse 7, this is what Solomon says again. Get wisdom. Get insight and do not forget and do not turn away from the words of my mouth, he says. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. And whatever you get, get insight. Now, since we've begun the book of James, the message has been crystal clear. True faith is going to be tested so far, right? That's what we've seen. And the question James seems to be asking is, will ours be tried and found wanting or will it be tested and found true? That's what we've been operating on as kind of a motif here. In today's text, James is still introducing us to the concept of true faith being put to the test. I'd like you to turn to James chapter 1, if you would. In the first section, verses 2 to 4, we learned that trials were an inevitable, variable, temporal, needful, sorrowful, and purposeful plan I mean, part of our true faith. Now, James takes up a second matter, which is very closely related to the first. Our desperate need of wisdom in the face of those trials. That's what James is getting at today. I can't think of a time, maybe you can, but I can't think of a time in which we need wisdom more than in the midst of a trial. 
It's pretty hard to act wisely when you're in pain, isn't it? Because all you can see is your pain. In fact, we can get quite irrational when we're in a painful, trying situation. When we've been wronged for no apparent reason or when we're experiencing suffering and we don't know why it's going on in our lives. As a pastor, James knew his people so well and he knew that during hard times, the first thing to fly out the window is wisdom. Why is that? Where is the source of wisdom? And I just took you through what the Bible says it is. Where's the source of wisdom? God, fear the Lord, right? What do we do when we experience suffering? We question God and try to figure out how we can get ourselves out of the situation. And wisdom steps onto the train and we watch it fade off into the distance. Now, it's one thing to lack wisdom, but when we become so wise in our own conceit that we question God's wisdom, it's much worse. Christians cannot afford to make decisions on their own, according to Scripture. They cannot afford to look anywhere else but into the eyes of their Father. Amen? When my son was young and he was hurting, what was the first thing out of his mouth? Daddy? Daddy, what's going on? Daddy, I need your help. Daddy, this hurts. Where do you go when you're hurting? Do you lash out at people or do you latch on to prayer? Someone has said that when you come to the end of your rope, tie a prayer knot and hang on. Essentially, that's what James is telling us in today's passage. He knows that trials test us and many times we don't know where to turn. James' message to his people in the first century is just as relevant to us today in the 21st century in the absence of wisdom we need to act in prayer. It's that simple. Look at James chapter 1, verses 5 to 8. James says, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask, let him ask in faith with no doubting. For one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must suppose, not suppose, that he will receive anything from the Lord, for he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now, James doesn't leave it easily at the concept of prayer here. He unpacks that that, that concept. And again, just in these short few verses, he's checking the vital signs of our faith. An attitude of prayer, he says, has certain requirements to it. It's not just enough to pray, just to pray. You have to pray the right way, he says. And so the first thing that he comes right out of the chute with is be aware. It begins with an awareness of our need. Look at verse 5, the first part. But if any of you lacks wisdom, what do we need? In trials, wisdom. The very first thing James refers to here is being aware of our lack of wisdom. 
But if any of you lacks, he says, I know it's hard to rejoice in trials. Some trials are so completely beyond our understanding. We don't know how in the world to handle them or why they're happening to us. We're asking questions like, did I do something to make God mad? Am I not in his will right now? Maybe he's disciplining me for some sin that I've committed. What does he want me to do with this? All these questions run through our minds when we experience trials and we want answers and we need wisdom and we must pray. So the first thing out of, about the attitude of awareness is we must be aware of our need of wisdom. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. That sounds pretty elementary, doesn't it? But have you noticed that some people don't want wisdom in their trials? They just want a way out of their trials. They just moan and complain and deep depend upon their own knowledge to figure out a way out of this predicament. In their eyes, they don't need God's help. They don't need God's wisdom to go through the trial. They just want out of it. Sometimes they'll even pray as a sort of last resort instead of a first approach. But they aren't really buying it, right? They're praying as a last resort, but in their minds, they're not buying it. They can pray all they want, but deep in their heart, they don't want to depend on God for the answer through the trial. They figure they can handle it themselves and they're not aware of their need. I love the honesty of Alistair Begg again. He gets so down and dirty with his assessment. He says, wisdom and pride cannot coexist in the same mind. Think about that. Wisdom and pride cannot coexist in the same mind at the same time. Humility is a precursor to wisdom. And it accompanies wisdom. In other words, as he says, you cannot be a fat head and a wise soul simultaneously. And we are fat-headed, aren't we? At times. I've dealt with people like that before. They come for so-called counseling, seeking solutions for their desperate trial that they're in or their problems that they're in that nine out of ten times they've caused. And when all the time, they're seeking solutions for this, right? But all the time, they have it all worked out in their head. And they simply want my approval. They're not seeking counsel. They want a yes man. And that's the way some people are with God in prayer too. They don't really want God's wisdom. They want to say that they've prayed before they go ahead with their own plan. I prayed about this. You know what? James says they're never going to be helped. You're never going to be helped until you really want help. And the only person that can help you is God. They will never get the wisdom of God to endure their trials until they become aware that they truly need the wisdom of God. They have to realize that they cannot do it on their own. I have to realize that. You have to realize that because I've been that person before. I know that. And you think you've got all the answers. But being aware of our need is only the first step 
toward the proper prayer attitude, says James. Secondly, he says we must be aware of our access to wisdom. James says if any of you lacks wisdom, and he does it very simply, let him ask. Let him ask. James says that assistance is always available to those who ask. And you know, asking is sometimes the hardest thing in the world for us, isn't it? We don't like to ask for help because it makes us feel inadequate. I can handle this. Am I right? I mean, we, we feel weak when we ask. We feel foolish. We feel humiliated. Why should we feel that way? The truth of the matter is that if we're operating without God, navigating this trial in our own strength, we are all those things anyway. God wants us to feel inadequate without him because we are inadequate without him. One commentator has said that a sense of spiritual poverty is a blessing when it leads a humble soul to God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We need to realize that not just in the area of trials, but in every single area of all of our lives, we need godly wisdom to remain in the center of his will. Asking for wisdom is the duty of the Christian. Literally, James commands us. This is a command in the original language. Let him ask of God is a command. This is so reminiscent of Jesus' words, which I'm sure James had heard before. In Matthew chapter 7, Verses 7 through 11. You know these verses. What does Jesus say? It's the Sermon on the Mount. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you'll find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, shall be opened. And there's a reason behind that. Why? What man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask? If you look at Luke chapter 11, verses 9 to 13, we won't go there, but that parallel passage says the same thing, only it says at the end, won't the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? So we must be aware of our need of wisdom, our access to wisdom, and also we need to be aware of the source of wisdom. James says, let him ask who? Let him ask who? God. It's one thing to realize we need help. It's another thing to ask for help. But the most important thing we need to know is who to seek for help. Amen? We need to go to the source of all wisdom, and it's God. As we've discovered, James is writing from a Jewish perspective. To the Jews, divine wisdom was thought to be embodied in the Jewish scriptures, the Torah. And study was the way to get to wisdom. And for the Christian, wisdom can definitely be found in the scriptures, but our study of the Bible needs to be intimately connected with prayer that God would illuminate the meaning of it so we'll know how to apply it. We need to go to the source. The source is God. When my kids were growing up, we had a Nintendo game console. It's still popular now. Everybody wants the nostalgic Nintendo 
And one of my favorite games, uh, their favorite games, was Super Mario Brothers, right? For any of you who have played the game, you know that there are obstacles, there are opponents to get through, to get to the end. There are all kinds of hidden helps and ways, though, along the way, escaping all the difficulties. Now, you may discover them on your own by trial and error, but you know what happens? Most of the time, you die trying. Luckily, in Mario Brothers, you get multiple lives. That's not the case in real life, is it? It's very frustrating, and you get disgusted with yourself. The manual is pretty helpful, but boy, what a great help it would be if you could talk directly to the creator of the game, right? He created this test of your wits, and he also knows all the escape routes. So it is with God. He created the Christian life, a life which includes tests and trials to prove our faith true, to produce perseverance so that we could successfully reach the end of the line. And he gave us the book to guide us. But most importantly, however, he has given us the opportunity to speak directly to him through the Holy Spirit. Amen? He knows the escape routes. He knows how to get through. And the open access that we have to consult him, he has given us the opportunity for to find all the secrets of success in the way of escape. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 13. Pretty familiar verse. I'm going to read it to you out of the Good News Translation. Every test that you have experienced is the kind that normally comes to people. But God keeps his promise, and he will not allow you to be tested beyond your power to remain firm. At the time you are put to the test, he will give you the strength to endure it and so provide you with a way out. Now, most of your translations say temptations there. Remember what I said, though, last message? That the word for temptation and the word for test is the same exact word in the Greek? Well, that's this word in 1 Corinthians 10. You see, we need to know the source, but it's nice to know about the source also. This is how God gives wisdom, James says. Look at it. Verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach. No strings attached. The tense of the word gives here indicates that it's a God. He is a God who continually gives to those who ask of him. He doesn't give like we often give to people sometimes with ulterior motives, sometimes with conditions, sometimes with limitations. No, James says he gives simply, he gives freely, he gives with a single-hearted sincerity. That's what the word generously really means here in this text. It means simply and purely and with integrity. He does it with an undivided heart toward us. To further the spiritual welfare of we who ask. He gives wisdom not only that we may understand the trials that we're experiencing, but that we may have the gifts necessary to live to his pleasure. And he doesn't ask for anything in return. And when James says he gives without reproach, you know what he means? He means he's not going to do it with an insult. 
He's not going to make us feel stupid because we keep coming to him and asking him time and time again. He doesn't roll his eyes and give a snide comment about how we, you were just here. You were just talking to me about this. I gave you the wisdom that you needed, but you used it wrong. We do that, right? We do that with our kids. We're like, are you back here again? How many times am I going to have to tell you, explain to you how to do a simple job? This is your last chance, right? (laughs) If you mess it up this time, you're done because I'm done. I'm tired of all this coming back and coming back and coming back. God doesn't do that, according to James. He didn't treat us that way. He doesn't respond to us that way when we're sincere in our requests. He just gives generously and without reproach. You see, unbelievers see God with a clenched fist. But as believers, we know our Father gives with open hands. He gives wisdom generously and without reproach to those who are aware of their need, to those who are aware of their free access to it, to him, and aware of their source of true wisdom. James 1, 5 to 8 here really boil down to three simple questions. As one man has said, here are the first two. First, what do we need? Wisdom. What should we do? Pray. Ask. He says, be assured. This is how you ask. Ask in faith. Verse 6. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man and unstable in all his ways. James again repeats that an individual must ask for wisdom. Second time he said it in this text. But he puts it in the form of a command again, and he adds a condition. He says, how are you supposed to ask? In faith. Faith is the hinge upon which the door of prayer swings open and closes. There can be no acceptable prayer without faith, by the way. Hebrews 11.6 says, and it is impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to him must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. That's what James is talking about when he says come in faith. In James' mind, he's not referring to a specific body of doctrinal truth like the faith, but to an attitude of single-hearted commitment, sincerity, and total dependence upon God to answer. It's what the Hebrew writer called the full assurance of faith. It's a huge focus of James in this letter, faith. As a matter of fact, he, he refers to it at least 14 different times. He's not advocating the power of positive praying here either. Name it and claim it type of a thing. That's not what he's saying here when he says ask in faith without doubting. That's a false teaching. He's saying praying in faith is praying simply. It's praying sincerely. It's praying properly and confidently Because it is Jesus in you who is prompting it. Therefore, we know we have what we ask for. 
know those verses in the scripture where Jesus says, ask whatever you want to in my name and my father will give it to you? You'll have your requests. It's not a carte blanche, you know, thing where you can just name what you want, ask it in Jesus' name and you got it. No, this is about praying the prayers that are centered in God's will that he is prompting you to pray from inside by the Holy Spirit. And when we pray that way, we know we have those requests granted because they come from God, not from our selfishness. 1 John chapter 5, verse 13 says that very clearly. We always forget this verse, these verses. These things I have written to you, John says, who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. That's James in a nutshell, right here in this passage. Years ago, one author gave us a great picture of what this really means. The author says, to pray is to let Jesus into our hearts. It is not our prayer which moves the Lord Jesus. It is Jesus who moves us to pray. He knocks Our prayers are always the results of Jesus knocking at our heart's door. To pray is nothing more involved than to let Jesus into our needs. To pray is to let Jesus glorify his name in the midst of our needs. That's what it means to ask in faith. He stands ready to give wisdom whenever we ask for it, whenever we pray that way. It really highlights the idea of Isaiah's prophetic word to Israel in Isaiah 65, 24, where the, Isaiah writes, before they call, I will answer. And while they are speaking, I will hear. Isn't that a beautiful verse? That's what it means to pray in faith. What a beautiful explanation of James's challenge in verse five. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith. See, when we approach God, we must not only believe that, what he, that he has the ability to grant the request, but that he's also willing to grant it for us. And he will grant it for us because it issues forth from him. Believing prayer stands upon the character of God who is a good, good father and who gives good gifts, right? James says we must have confidence in the prayer, in prayer beyond a shadow of a doubt because, verse 6, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea. No assurance, no faith, praying without faith means that we're undecided. Let him ask in faith without any doubting, James says. You know what doubting means at constant variance with oneself here. We're not just talking about, you know, periods of uncertainty which often lead to greater faith. When he says doubt here, he's not talking about somebody that's kind of contemplating in their mind, oh, is this true? No, that's not what the word means here. We're talking about periods 
here that are much, much deeper than that. It denotes a mind which is habitually torn in two different directions at the same time. It keeps jumping between two possible positions or desires. The inner desires are divided between God's desires and the world's wisdom. He or she is constantly jumping in and out of one side or the other. This is not just an intellectual ping-pong match that James is talking about here. But you know what it is? It is a moral war within the soul. James is talking about something moral here. And it's a continual thing. He says, let him ask without any doubting. It means it's going on. It's this battle. It's this wrestling match between wanting God's will and wanting to hold on to our will. Wanting what God wants and wanting to do what the world wants. You think of an Old Testament example about this, can't you? In uh, 1 Kings chapter 18, when Elijah confronts Israel, who are apostate and worshiping false gods, and he says to him, he says to them, How long will you waver between two opinions? Right? Remember that? How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal, follow him. And literally that phrase there, how long will you hesitate between two opinions, is how long will you limp on between two divided opinions? And that's exactly what happens when somebody's in that sphere. They're limping. They're limping in their Christian walk. And James paints a picture of such a man being like wind-driven surf, totally unstable. No assurance not, doesn't just mean being undecided. It means being unstable, unstable. For that man ought not to expect anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in verse 8, in all his ways. The picture is not just of normal swells of the sea, but waves rising and swelling and being thrown back and forth by the wind. He's trying to show four-dimensional instability here. The doubter is like the water, which has no inner stability at all, tossed about by external forces. It echoes the thought of the immature person in Ephesians chapter 4 who is tossed about by every wind of doctrine, right? Wisdom from God cannot dwell in such a person who is so unstable and unable to follow through. God's wisdom is sure-footed, it's steadfast, it's not compatible with the doubter who constantly staggers and slips because he's trying to run in two directions. You can't run in the direction of the world and the direction of God simultaneously, James says. You can't serve two masters. No, James calls that kind of wisdom demonic. Look at chapter 3, verse 17. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy, good fruits, unwavering. 
without hypocrisy. You see the difference? See the contrast? No assurance also means unacceptability in verse 7. But that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. Notice how James separates himself from the doubter. He says, that man, right? Like, you can always tell when somebody has prejudice in their heart, right? When they talk about those people, regardless of who the other group is. That's what James is doing here. He's separating himself from somebody who is steeped in unbelief. See, now that man, let not that man, putting a distance between himself and them. There's a hint of personal rejection here. A faithless, doubting attitude is unacceptable to God, and such a person should stop entertaining any thought of having their prayers answered. James is being bold here. As we go through, James, you're going to have to remember to wear your steel-toed boots on Sunday morning because he's going to step on all of our toes over and over and over again because beyond being unstable and unacceptable, James says that the one who doubts in this way is absolutely unreliable, unreliable, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Double-minded literally means two-souled. Two sold. And that word, by the way, was found nowhere else in the Bible or nowhere else in early Greek literature. Some people think that James actually coined the term. And he uses it twice. He uses it again in chapter 4 and verse 8 where he talks about drawing near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you sinners. Double-minded, two-souled. John Bunyan in Pilgrim's Progress had a name for that man. Mr. Facing Both Ways. And that's exactly what's talking about here, what he's talking about. He's got a spiritual split personality, this person. James says the Christian is not supposed to be a spiritual schizophrenic. He has the mind of Christ according to Paul. That's why James calls the doubter that man. Christians are not supposed to be that man, that man or woman. James pulls no punches here. He steps on toes. He tests our faith. He's scratching the paint to see if there's solid Christianity underneath the exterior. There was a philosopher who once said, scratch a Christian and you'll find a pagan. You believe that? I hope not. Because that's a cynical worldview. But James isn't holding to that concept. He's saying you scratch a Christian, you ought to find a Christian underneath there. Because the doubter has such a volatile, unstable nature, not just in the area of faith, but in all his ways, he is unreliable and not trustworthy. Someone has said that the man who does not trust in God cannot be trusted by men. Interesting statement. Let me ask you a question. Would you trust someone with two personalities? You wouldn't know which one you were talking to, would you? Let me put it in a different way. If you went to somebody's door and you were greeted by a dog who was showing his teeth and wagging his tail, which one would you trust? 
Would you trust that dog? One commentator said that there is a close connection here between the way a man prays and the way a man lives. James makes the same point. If you find a man who holds on to the promises of God and prays with the assurance that God will hear his prayer, a man who always runs to God first when the trials come, you will find a man who is stable, firm convictions, faithful integrity, and a fruitful life in whom you can place our confidence. Girls, that's the guy you want to marry. Guys, that's the guy you want to be. But friends, you will never be able to be that person until you know Christ as your Lord and Savior. You know why? Because ultimately, wisdom is found in a person. Wisdom is a person. Wisdom is Christ personified. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30 says, By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And think about your attitude in prayer and your attitude in life. Do they resemble one another? Does it pass the James test of faith? Because I know we do. You know, you're going through a trial and you're like, God, give me the wisdom to get through this. Please. Deep down inside, you know that God says, well, I want you to quit doing such and such a thing. And you're like, okay, God, maybe there's another way. It's like, uh, I want to I keep doing this. Uh, maybe I'll give it up for Lent. Do a little test run. God says, no, I want you to do this. And you're going, nah, but God, yeah, I want to I be closer to you and I want your wisdom, but I, I, I want that. And you're back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. You know what's going to happen? You're not going anywhere in your faith. Unstable, unreliable, unacceptable, undecided. What do we need? Wisdom. What should we do? Pray. Ask God in faith. What can we expect? I don't want to end on a downer. We'll end on the positive. Because James says it right there in verse 5. What can you expect? God answers our prayer when we are offering it in faith. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Amen? So accept the principle. Very simple. God is on the hook. James puts God on the hook. Actually, God put God on the hook. That he will answer when we turn to him for wisdom in times of need. James says it will be given to him. It can be had simply for the asking. Simply for the asking. When the asking is it's sincere and uncorrupted, and you say, God, I want your wisdom in this situation, and he gives you the wisdom, and then you put it into practice. Because God delights to give good gifts. We're going to see that when we get to verse 17 in this chapter. So here's the principle. Very simple principle. Ask and it will be given. Ask in faith and it will be given. David Urey was desperate. His wife lay critically injured from an auto accident in West Virginia 
Doctor said she needed the attention of a neurosurgeon to survive. And they advised against transporting her by ambulance on the four-hour trip to Washington, D.C. And the nearest center for the needed medical attention was there. But she wouldn't make it. Yuri and his father, Joe Yuri of Elkins, made a series of telephone calls in search of a helicopter. And they had almost given up hope when Yuri finally told his father. True story. I read it in the paper. <laughs> Fake news, right? This actually came out in 1970. It was probably true back then. (laughs) Yuri had almost given up hope when he finally said to his father, I'm going to call the White House. The White House. And he did. And he asked for the president's military aid. And General James D. Hughes came to the telephone, heard Yuri's story, and promised to send a helicopter. Large military air ambulance flew to Petersburg Saturday evening and took the 27-year-old Mrs. Urey to Georgetown University, the paper proclaimed, in Washington for emergency treatment, and she got it. Her condition was serious, and the hospital officials said that they will try to avoid surgery because of her pregnant condition. Interesting news article. The guy had the audacity to call the White House, the highest level of power in the land. Can you imagine calling the White House? Who would have thought that such a request would be granted? Certainly wouldn't be calling that one with faith, would you? Yet how much more has God offered to those who ask of him in faith? Come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Pray, James says, in faith if you need wisdom, and he'll give it generously, unreserved, sincerely, and without reproach. You know how I know that he will do that, and he comes through because we have a living example of it in Jesus Christ.